When I was in the fourth or fifth grade, right in that time frame, uh, my grandmother was in the hospital. And up until that point uh, in my life, we'd experienced a lot of instability. We moved around a lot. I went to a different elementary school every year of elementary school. And so some of my earliest memories of stability or consistency of any kind come from her. Um, She and my uncle had adopted me and my younger brother and were raising us. And she got sick. And so I remember uh, every day uh, getting picked up from school. And we would go and we would get to this hospital and we would go into this room that had chairs lined up all over the place and we would we would sit. And we did a lot of things in this room. Every day after school, we would eat. We would eat in this room. We would get to know the other kids that were around, if there were any kids, and we would spend time with them as well. And my uncle had this uh, uh, weight on him, and so he would buy us these cards at a local card shop every day. And so while we would sit there waiting, he would give us these cards, and my brother and I would open cards and exchange cards and look at sports cards and all kinds of stuff. Because he was wrestling with this emotion of preparing himself to say goodbye to his mom and trying to figure out how to lead his two young nephews into how to say goodbye to their grandmother. And so we would sit and we would wait and wait. Fast forward many years later in my life and I can remember the birth of each one of my children and I remember getting to walk out of the operating room when my wife gave birth to all four of them. And walk down the hall of the hospital. And for three of them, it was the same hospital. And I would walk down the hall and I would walk into a room, another room filled with chairs, similar to this, just lining the walls. And with great joy, I could walk in and announce to the family that was sitting there waiting the birth of our children with great joy. We have these rooms all over the place. They sit and they line the room with chairs, and we call these rooms waiting rooms. They're designed for us to sit and to wait. And sometimes as we sit and wait, we're waiting for uh, the good news of the start of a life, the beautiful start of a new life, and we're excited, but a lot of the time we're also sitting in these rooms lined with chairs that we call waiting rooms, and we're sitting and we're waiting to not just celebrate the new life that has started, but the deep sadness of having to say goodbye to a life that's coming to an end. We sit and we wait. And I don't know about you, but I've sat in many waiting rooms, both physically and emotionally, just waiting for answers, waiting for results, waiting for resolution, waiting for something to change. In fact, I would say that I think waiting is one of the hardest things that we do as human beings. Waiting is one of the most difficult things that we experience in this life. And one of the hardest parts of waiting for me is my thoughts. I don't know if you're wired like me, but as I wait, my thoughts, they can run wild on me. Different fears and scenarios, what ifs, regrets, wonders, they flood my mind and oftentimes even make it difficult for me to sleep. To think, to make decisions, to do what's next. I sit and I wait, and the waiting is so hard to experience any kind of peace in the midst of. Maybe you've been there. 
Maybe, like me, you have vivid memories of sitting in a physical waiting room, waiting to say goodbye to someone you love, wishing there could be a different solution. Or you can vividly remember sitting in the waiting room as someone brought in the good news that a new life had started, and maybe you were the one that got to walk into that waiting room and announce it to a waiting family. Maybe for you it's not a physical waiting room. Maybe it's just this emotional waiting room. You just want something to be different. You just wish there was enough money in the account to make Christmas special this year. You just wish that there could be a different diagnosis than the one that you were just given. You just wish that the job would work out different. You just wish that you could have peace in the midst of the turmoil that you find yourself in. And so you wait. And it might not be a physical room lined with chairs, but it feels all the same that you're sitting and you're waiting. And maybe what you want more than anything else while waiting is what I've longed for while waiting, and it's just some sense of peace. See, the Bible talks clearly about these things, and so I want to explore two questions this morning and answer them from a biblical perspective. The first question being, what does it really mean to wait? The Bible speaks a lot about waiting, and what does it actually mean when the Bible tells us to wait and describes waiting and the second question is, what does the Bible really have to say about peace? What is peace, biblically speaking? And then how do those two things come together? How does this idea of waiting and peace come together for us? The first question, what does it mean to wait? My father-in-law turned me to a verse and, and just helped me wrap my mind around a verse that's helped me understand this really well. It's found in the book of Isaiah, the 40th chapter, the very end of that chapter, the last verse, verse 31 And it reads this way. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall rise up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not become weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. In the Hebrew language, which is what this verse was written in, the word renew, renew their strength, literally means that they will find an endless supply of fresh strength. This endless supply of fresh strength, meaning those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength, meaning they're going to get stronger in the midst of their weakest moment. When you're in the waiting room wanting something so desperately, this verse tells us that in those moments, you will receive a fresh strength that goes beyond what you're capable to muster on your own. And that supernatural strength that's given to you Isaiah tells us comes from one source, and it's the very first phrase in that verse. He says, those who wait upon the Lord are the ones who get that supernatural strength when they need it the most. Those who are actually waiting for the Lord to do something. It's a fascinating thing. The the word wait doesn't mean what we mean when we say it in English. When we mean it's like sit back idly, kind of wait for the results. There's no timetable. At the end of that timetable, it works. But there's 25 different words in Hebrew to describe waiting. I think God wanted to say something about this. And when he describes waiting, he describes it differently. One of the primary words that he uses to describe waiting is the word kavah. Everyone say kavah. This word literally means to intermingle or bind. To intermingle or bind together. So you're taking two things and you're bringing them together. One of the images to think about is a mother braiding her daughter's hair. My wife has braided my daughter's hair numerous times. In a picture, that's not my wife and daughter, by the way, but that's just a stock image from Google. Thank you. 
But she takes the hair, individual hairs, and she weaves them together. She intermingles the hair together and creates something beauty. The intermingling is what creates the beauty in the moment. It's the bringing together of multiple things. Or think about the strength of a rope. When you have a rope, you can have a single cord to that rope. And you want to make a rope that's even stronger, you might take two pieces and begin to intermingle them, or three pieces, and you braid and intermingle them together. And that intermingled rope, that bringing together, is stronger than any one piece could be on its own. But at the same time, it's not simply grabbing them together and holding on. It requires the binding and intermingling of the rope together to create the strength that wasn't there to begin with. This is what the Bible means when it speaks of this word kavah. To wait upon the Lord means to intermingle your life together, bind it together with him, meaning... When we say wait, we say just kind of wait, wait it out. Wait till the end of this period of time. When the Bible says wait, it means actively tap into his strength, intermingle his strength with your weakness. Invite him into this moment of your life while you're waiting where you don't think you can keep going and you ask for him to come and weave himself together in the midst of what you're experiencing to renew a strength that you could not muster up on your own. And so Isaiah says, those who wait upon the Lord, those who intermingle, bind together their life with his, will renew, have this steadfast supply of strength in the midst of their difficult circumstance. It's a whole different approach to the idea of waiting. So how does this work with this idea of peace? Well, like the, in the Hebrew language, the word, the word of God speaks clearly to peace. Multiple words to describe it. The two primary words in your Old Testament is going to be shalom, ariene in the Greek language in your New Testament. These two words. And what they could literally be translated as is to make complete or whole. The idea is something's been broken. Right? The peace has been destroyed. And so enter in something else to restore that which was broken, to bring shalom, to bring peace to that which was disrupted or to take something that's unfinished right this isn't complete yet and you bring shalom to it you complete that which was incomplete before so shalom to bring peace is to restore or complete something to bring it to fullness and wholeness the way it was designed to be and so when the bible speaks of this like let's go back to the prophet isaiah when he would prophesy of the coming king, Jesus, he referenced him as the prince of shalom, the prince of peace. The one who would come and fix everything that's been broken. The one who would come and he wouldn't just bring peace, he would bring peace. And Isaiah says that peace would last forever. It would be ongoing forever and ever. Shalom that would never end. So when Isaiah prophesies about Jesus' coming and this idea of shalom, that's what he's talking about. You see, what was broken is us. Your sin broke the relationship that you had with your creator. You go all the way back to the beginning of this narrative of scripture. In, in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, prior to Genesis 3, you had this complete whole relationship between God and his creation. Then in Genesis 3, sin enters the picture, and now that relationship is broken. It's been destroyed. There is no peace between God and man because of sin. And so Isaiah says, but there's coming one who's going to bring shalom to that brokenness. And he comes and he brings it. Jesus comes and he becomes the sacrifice 
that's required to bring shalom, to fix that which was broken in your relationship with your creator. But enter into what we've been calling in this series, the already, not yet. We've already experienced shalom, but not yet experienced it the way it's going to be fully. All right? We, we already experienced some, not yet complete. We live in the middle. We wait. And while we wait, we long for the day when shalom will be completed. Jesus comes and he fixes your relationship with God. There is shalom. You experience that in life now. You can have a good relationship. The book of Hebrews tells us that you can enter the throne room of God with confidence. You can enter into God's presence with confidence because of what Jesus has done for you. That's shalom. That's peace between you and God. And yet we would all agree that there are times when we sit and wait for the resolution to some pretty dark and broken stuff in this world, wishing it would go away and change. We long for the not yet, the shalom that will come and restore peace to everything where completion to all of creation will take place. Creation will have a wholeness to it. And we long for that day of peace to come. Now, two examples from Scripture about how this play out that have really ministered to me in the last week. One from your Old Testament and one from your New Testament. This idea that when we intermingle our lives with God, he provides this peace that rests on us, that goes beyond understanding. The first one is found in the book of Daniel. We'll go to the Old Testament first. If you have your Bible, you can open it to Daniel chapter 6. Now, while you're turning there, let me fill you in on this. By the time we get to Daniel chapter 6, Daniel's around 80 years old. And there's a couple things I'd want you to keep in mind about his life. Daniel had walked faithfully with God. He had a righteousness about him. He desired to please the Lord. And he had done this consistently for many years, serving in public service, in leadership in the culture around him that did not love his God. And so some people, as they notice the righteous living of Daniel, get a little bit jealous, a little bit upset. Like, this guy thinks he's better than everybody. That kind of mindset. It's the conviction that maybe you felt before you became a Christian when you got around Christians. That you're like, why? Like, you have this relationship with God that I don't have, and I don't like that. And so rather than dealing with it and accepting that relationship with God, I'd rather just make you feel horrible. And so that's what they do. They try. But the problem is they can't find anything wrong with Daniel to turn him in and get him in trouble. Because he just keeps making the right decisions. And here's the first point I want you to remember about Daniel. Daniel didn't experience peace with God just in the circumstances, right, that rose up in his life. He had walked with God every single day. So when those circumstances came, he tapped into this intermingling relationship that he had already had. Chuck Swindoll famously said of him, Daniel's relationship with the Lord was not crisis-oriented. I love that. He didn't just rely on God in the moments of crisis when, you know, the waiting room experience, when I have to have peace. And now I'll turn to the Lord. Daniel turned to the Lord every single day and had prayed and prayed and prayed. And so these men that want to get back at Daniel, they can't find anything wrong with him. And so they have to come up with a deceitful plan. So they play to the arrogance of the king, Darius or Cyrus at the time. And this king loved himself very much. And he loved to worship himself, and he loved attention, and he loved his own image, and he loved being in control. And so they play to that arrogance, and they convince him to pass a law. And that law says that for the next 30 days, nobody in all the land can worship their God. Nobody can pray to their God. Only, only, the only person you can pray to or worship is the king. And they pass the law, knowing good and well Daniel wasn't going to obey it because Daniel would not sacrifice his relationship with his God for cultural convenience and comfort. 
And they were right. The law is passed, and Daniel, just like he had done every day before, sits down and prays. And when he prays, he breaks the law. And he prays this prayer. Well, these guys want to go back to the king, and the king doesn't want to punish Daniel. But he has to. They call him out on, hey, you're going to have to follow through on this. You passed the law, which is where we're going to pick up. Daniel chapter 6, if you would stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to start in verse 15. Here's what we learn from the story. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Two people, two different situations. You've got a faithful man in Daniel who repeatedly is referred to as continually walking with God. Even by those who did not know God, they recognized the consistency of this man's relationship with God. Every day Daniel woke up, he was inviting God to intermingle, to bind together with his life every single day. And that faithfulness was something he would not compromise. He would not give it up for any amount of comfort, no matter what. Now you have this other guy, you have this king, who's so full of himself and so arrogant loves his power, control, and image more than anything else to the point that he would not be willing to do the right thing if it meant it might cost him some of that. And so he wasn't willing to give up and do the right thing. And so now you have them placed in two different situations. Because of his faithfulness, Daniel's placed in a lion's den. Now let me explore the lion's den with you for a minute. We love reading it like a children's book. We love like, oh yeah, he was rescued, awesome. But do you think, even for a moment, that when he was thrown into that lion's den, that he knew immediately how God was going to rescue him? No. When he was thrown into that lion's den, he found himself in an emotional waiting room of sorts. I don't know what's going to happen here. Lions, they like to eat people and kill people. And that's not a comfortable situation to find yourself in. We read to the end of the story too often. Place yourself in the moment with him. His faithfulness had led him into this waiting room where he didn't know what the outcome would be. As a matter of fact, in those moments of weakness, it could have been that, hey, even if I die, it's okay. I know I'm going to go be with God, but I don't know that I'm going to live through this. I don't know that this is going to end the way I want it to end. And I find myself sitting here waiting and my faithfulness and my trust being tested by the waiting. And yet in the middle of the waiting, he finds peace. Now God shows up and closes the mouth of the lions. That helps provide some peace, doesn't it? He has some peace. 
But the text tells us at the very end, the last verse that we read says that when he was lifted out, not a wound was on his body. Why? It doesn't say because God closed the mouth of the lion, even though that's true. It says not a wound was found on Daniel because he trusted his God. Because he made a decision in the midst of the waiting to intermingle and bind together his life with God's. In the moment of his weakness, to rely on the strength of the Lord. And like Isaiah told us, while waiting on the Lord, the Lord renewed his strength. Gave him a supernatural ability to withstand the waiting. Now think about the king. Here's somebody who has worked his whole life to build the comfort that he had. He had a palace. He had influence. Everything he wanted, he could have, all at his fingertips. Everybody around him was around to serve him. His life had the utmost comfort, the utmost influence, the utmost power, money, fill in the blank. He was living the life. And yet, on that night, when Daniel experienced peace in a lion's den, the text tells us this man who had everything going for him couldn't sleep. And he couldn't eat. And he couldn't distract himself with entertainment. Nothing worked. He had no peace at all. And the lesson is right there, plain as day for us. That our peace, our ability to have a peace that comes from God is not dependent on our circumstances. Where we find ourselves waiting, it's not dependent on our ability to work extra hard to achieve things. Because those things don't provide peace for us. The resolution to the circumstance itself doesn't provide the peace to us. I mean, you can have everything going for you, friends. You can have all of your finances in order. Enough money in the checking account to pay all the bills and then some. You can have everything planned out perfectly the way you want it to go. Your kids can be grown and successful and happy and healthy and everything going the way that you want it to go. Everything at work going good. You can save up all that money and be living that life you've been waiting your whole life to live, going on those vacations taking all those incredible pictures, having those experiences, forming those core memories for your children. You can be living your life and finally meet that person, finally meet that man or that woman who's going to treat you the way you've always deserved to be treated. And in the midst of it all, you can lay down at night and not have any peace at all. You can be sitting there waiting for the next thing that you hope will bring peace. And you know, like I know, that your thoughts will flood through your brain and create some things in you that you would not describe as peace. You might describe it as anxiety. You might describe it as frustration, disappointment, worry. But you wouldn't use the word peace. A state of complete and total peace because I've controlled everything in my life. Because you know in just a moment with one phone call can change. It's not the circumstances that provide peace. This past year, my, my group of friends, we went through a, a big loss. A guy that had meant a lot to me in my life went missing, and we found ourselves waiting for days, wishing and hoping for a different outcome. Praying, like, please. And we're waiting. And the outcome didn't go the way we wanted to. He was killed. And it was painful and it was brutal. But something happened that until you decide to intermingle and intertwine your life with his, you, you can't understand it fully. There was this peace that rested on all of us because we knew that he knew the Lord well 
And because we had turned to the Lord in the middle of it all, just saying, please, we just, and there was peace. And even though it didn't end the way we wanted it to end, we were able to tap into a peace, a strength, and the Lord continued to renew that strength to this day, giving this family peace that goes beyond what I can fully understand in the midst of their darkest waiting period. And this is what we learned from Daniel. Example number two, it's found in your New Testament. And it's the life of Mary. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Luke chapter 1. While you're turning there, just a brief thing. The angel Gabriel shows up to Mary and makes this grand announcement to her. You have found favor with God, and it startles her. Now, again, we have a tendency at this time of the year to read passages like this and just, yeah, I know how it ends. I know how it goes. Pause for a second. Let's just walk through her story. I won't make you stand this time because I'm going to walk through the passage a little bit slower. Let's just walk through her experience. Luke chapter 1, verse 29. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. That's an understatement, Dr. Luke. I think she was a little blown away by the fact that an angel was talking to her about something so profound as God's favor resting on her. Verse 30. But the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, pause as we continue reading this passage. Mary would have been at least familiar with her Old Testament, if not an expert in hearing it every day. And in her familiarity with this, I got to wonder, and there's no way to prove this, but I got to wonder if in her mind as she's hearing this language, she's connecting it with Isaiah, who said that there was coming a prince of Shalom who will come and fix everything else. And you are telling me that the one whose kingdom will reign forever somehow is going to be connected to my life. She's completely blown away. And I'm supposed to give birth to this prince of peace. And then she asks a delightful question in verse 34. How can this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? A completely logical question to ask. How in the world is this going to happen? Like, how is this possible for this to be what's happening in my life? And she's sitting here, I'm sure, for a brief moment, waiting for a response when the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come on you, Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, for she was said to be unable to conceive, is now in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. And we're like, Merry Christmas. But listen, her whole world changed in this moment. Every dream she ever dreamed is now completely changed. Every hope that she had had for her life, every picture she had imagined what would take place in her life, now all these worries and thoughts have to be coming into her mind thinking, okay, like this is going to happen. I understand, but like that doesn't go well in my culture. And I'm engaged to be married to somebody, and that's not going to work out now. And everything I've ever wanted for my life, this simple, poor girl who wanted just nothing but to live out her days the way that she had watched everyone else around, now gets this moment in her life where everything is turned upside down. And in that moment, without any possibility of knowing how it would all work out, she responds in verse 38, I'm the Lord's servant, and I don't know how this is going to work, but may your word to me be fulfilled. And now she waits for months. 
And she waits for a resolution. She waits to see how this is all going to play out. There's no possibility that she could connect all the dots in that moment. There's no possibility that in those nine months, she knew every detail about everything that was going to take place. And she just had this peace because she knew this will happen and then this will happen the way that we do pregnancies now, right? Like, hey, this will happen and I'll do my shower on this day and then we'll get these gifts and then, oh, we got the bank account in order. Let's go design the nursery. Like that didn't happen for her. She waited to see the response of the world around her as they looked on her and heaped shame toward her. There is no way she was prepared to handle the weight of the change that took place in her life. And she responds with, but I trust the one who can. Corey Tin Boom wrote extensively, and one of the stories that she tells about her childhood was when she was a little girl. She was on a trip with her dad. Her dad was a watchmaker. And so they'd gone on this trip, and they took the train, and they were buying a bunch of parts and a bunch of things so that he could continue his business. And they're on their way back. They get on the train, and she notices a piece of paper on the floor. And so she picks it up. It had a poem on it. And she reads the poem. And in the poem, it brings up this word that she was unfamiliar with, the word that every dad dreads that their child is going to ask them. It's the word sex. And so she goes to her dad, and she says on this train, right, Dad, what is sex? And she describes it this way. She said, my father looked at me like he always did when he was getting ready to answer a question. But this time he said nothing. (laughs) He just stared at me for the longest time without saying a word. But finally, he stood up and he lifted that heavy suitcase off the rack above our heads and set it on the floor. And he said, Corey, would you carry that off the train for me? And so she stood up and she began to try to move this large suitcase full of all these different parts. And she just couldn't. It couldn't budge. And she tried, and she tried, and she tried. And she looked at her dad and said, Dad, I'm sorry, but it's too heavy. And he responded, yes, it is. And I'd be a pretty bad father to ask a little girl to carry such a heavy load. And he says, Corey, it's the same way with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for children to handle. When you're older and stronger, you can bear the weight and handle the responsibility. And at that time, the answer will be made available to you, and you'll be able to carry it. But right now, the answer to your question is too heavy for you to carry. So I want you to trust me to carry it for you. And she responded this way. As a little girl, I was satisfied with that. I learned that all of my hard questions have answers, but some of those answers I was not ready to comprehend yet. But that didn't bother me because I knew the one who had the answers. I knew and I trusted my father. This is what we learn about peace in the life of Mary. There's no way she knew how this would all play out and how everything was going to work. You see, your peace is not dependent upon your control or understanding of how things will play out. Biblically speaking, those of us who have said, I place my life under the lordship of Jesus, know that we get a peace that goes beyond our understanding, meaning I don't understand how this will play out, and yet God meets me in this weakness. And I can intertwine and bind my life together with his to create a strength, renew a strength that I could not get without that kavah, that waiting upon the Lord to move. And Luke describes Mary's life beautifully. In chapter 2, verse 19, when he says this, but Mary, upon another stressful moment in her life, the birth of Jesus, treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart, wondering What's God going to do next? I, I don't know the answers, but I know the one who does, and I trust him to carry that which I can't carry on my own. And I'm not ready to understand fully what it means that I just am about to give birth to the Savior of the world, but one day I'll understand. And until I get there, I trust him to carry the weight of that knowledge. 
You see, peace is not about control. It's about trust. It's about trusting God while we wait. I've had the privilege in my life of being a pastor. It's not one of the greatest privileges of my life. And walking with many families through these waiting rooms where I get to come in and I get to sit next to them and wait with them. I've been with many of you. This past year, I got to sit in the living room and the waiting room with a family who has had to learn a lot about waiting on the Lord. Karen and Phil Hernandez. But rather than me tell their story, I'll let them. On June 21st, my phone rang. It was my doctor who said the words that no one is prepared to hear. Karen, you have breast cancer. It felt like my whole world went spinning and I tried to be strong. I tried to pull myself together, but I couldn't. I was paralyzed by fear. My head knew what he said, but my heart couldn't accept it. Telling my husband, telling my kids, it became more real every time I said the word cancer. But what was worse than the diagnosis was the waiting. <laughs> waiting for tests, waiting rooms before and after appointments, waiting for the results of the biopsies, waiting for surgery and knowing this cancer was inside of me. I knew waiting would be the hardest part. But in my waiting, God was waiting with me, encouraging me, pointing me to his word and his truth. The verse was 2 Corinthians started to play over and over in my mind. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness. It took me a long time to work through that passage. Some scriptures are easier to swallow than others. Some can't be believed until they are lived. And in my fears and in my worries, and in, if I'm honest, my doubts, I kept coming back to the truth of that passage. But I was struggling to accept this was the journey that God would lead me to. At the time this all started, I was doing a Bible study on prayer. I was reminded that God wants our prayers to be bold and to be specific. Everyone I told was asking how they could pray for me. My women's Bible study, my friends, my family, my pastor, and so many here at church. And so I decided to come up with five very specific prayer requests. And my people started praying. On August 4th, Phil and I drove to the hospital for my surgery. <laughs> uh, I had never had any major surgery and I was afraid afraid of the surgery, afraid of the outcome, afraid to leave Phil sitting in the waiting room, terrified of what would happen between the time I checked in and the time surgery was over. But out of nowhere, I felt it for the first time. Peace. It was unbelievable and amazing. Miraculously, each of the five specific things that I asked people to pray for got checked off the list one by one. 
God did not leave one of them out and he showed up and I couldn't shut my mouth about it. I told everyone I saw just how great my God is. This road by no means has been easy. It's been the hardest thing I've ever had to go through. And since August 4th, I've had two more surgeries and another final one will be in January. I'm still waiting for healing, but ever since that day, I have indescribable peace. And Isaiah 41:13 says, for I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Every time I read this simple verse on my fridge, I picture Jesus sitting right beside me and holding my hand. How could I not have peace picturing that? Even with peace, waiting isn't easy. Waiting so easily grows into fear. But one command that is all over the Bible from cover to cover is do not be afraid. While I accepted my diagnosis, God wanted me to accept his peace. He commands us not to fear because our fears influence what we worship. And when we worship the things or people we trust in, but I trust in God, even when life doesn't go my way, even as I cry out and wait for this to be over with, I may not always understand his purpose or why he allowed this, but I know my God and I know he loves me and that he has promised to bring about eternal blessings, not just in spite of my sufferings, but because of them. From the day my doctor called to this very moment, God is in control. He is as good today as he was before I was diagnosed, and I have peace knowing he will take care of me. And Advent is a season of waiting. We're all waiting for something better, and I can rest in the waiting knowing God has something better for me, both now in this life and in the life to come. Whatever difficulty I am currently experiencing cannot be compared to the glory he has revealed to me and that God's and that he gives me peace for today and whatever tomorrow may hold. As I continue on through the highs and the lows of this cancer journey, I don't want to run from this season God has led me to just because it's hard. That's usually where he does his best work. No matter how difficult it gets, I know that God has a purpose for taking me on this journey. And today I'm cancer free, which is pretty exciting, but the journey isn't over. And until it is, Waiting and peace. <laughs> we come together when we intermingle. We bind our lives together with his. So this Advent, while you long for the coming of the Prince of Peace, bind your life, your heart, together with him, and he will renew your strength. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you don't leave us alone to wait, that you have promised that if we will wait on you, if we will bind our lives and our hearts together with yours, that you will meet us in that place and renew our strength. But Father, there's many in the room who are experiencing a season of waiting right now that just feels too heavy and we need that strength. And so we come to you and we call out to you. We cry out to you, asking you to meet us in the waiting and to renew our strength. 
Father, I thank you for the testimony of those who have modeled that so well for us. I thank you for the reminder and the call of Scripture to lean on you for our understanding, to rely on you for our strength, to know that your grace is sufficient for us. And we pause to say thank you for that in Jesus' name.